is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. NATO ministers meet as Russia flexes its muscles, the latest from our man at the talks. Military experts say put more money into defence or stop spending on big projects. And the real meaning of medals, are they still relevant in the 21st century? I just think that most armed forces um, families would appreciate having proper housing rather than a piece of tin. NATO defence ministers are meeting on day two of talks in Brussels with Russia and Ukraine high on the agenda. The main focus so far has been on strengthening the alliance's collective defence capability amid growing tensions with Russia. There have been words too about the challenges of Islamist extremism in Iraq, North Africa and Syria, but only words. As Rob Olver reports, NATO's priority is to bolster and reassure its eastern allies. Here at NATO headquarters in Brussels, the talk is all about Russia. It's annexed part of Ukraine and is accused of fueling conflict elsewhere in the country. Moscow has also invested heavily in 40 intercontinental ballistic missiles. The alliance's secretary-general, Jens Stoltenberg, says NATO is now responding to that. I expect uh, that we will increase uh, further the strength and the capability of uh, the NATO response force, including its air, sea and uh, special forces uh, components. Altogether, we expect this force to be up to 40,000 strong. Uh, this is a substantial uh, increase compared to the previous level of uh, 13,000 troops. Uh, we will also improve our uh, advanced uh, planning and speed up uh, political and military decision-making. Training exercises in countries that border Russia are also being ramped up. A new very high readiness spearhead force is now operational. Britain is contributing 3,000 troops in 2017 and at least 1,000 each year until the end of the decade, including the Polish-led spearhead in 2020. The Defence Secretary Michael Fallon has announced that 4,000 personnel will take part in exercises with Eastern Allies this year and is extending the deployment of four typhoons as part of the NATO Baltic air policing mission. 250 tanks and armour and equipment are to be pre-positioned in NATO countries that border Russia. Moscow sees that as a provocation. Not so, says NATO. The alliance does not wish it says to be drawn into an arms race. It only wants to keep its member countries safe. This is a mild reaction, it argues, and a measured response to what it sees as aggressive behaviour. This is defensive. Uh, this is uh, something which is uh, 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 a prudent and, uh, and uh, uh, necessary response uh, to what we have seen uh, from Russia over a long period of time. Uh, Russia has, uh, over many years, invested heavily in defence. Uh, they have uh, increased defence spending in, uh, uh, in over many years. Uh, at the same time, NATO allies have decreased their defence spending uh, and uh, they have uh, uh, conducted many SNAP exercises and they have used these SNAP exercises as disguise for, for instance, uh, uh, moving forces into uh, Crimea, destabilizing eastern Ukraine. And, uh, and uh, they are also using now nuclear rhetoric 
and more nuclear exercises as part of their defence posturing. Amid this crisis, NATO's overall defence spending continues to drop by 1.5% in the past year alone. There's been much arm twisting to try to remedy that here in Brussels, but the real elephant in the room is Islamic extremism. Former Chief of the Defence Staff, Lord David Richards, has said this week it's the biggest single global threat. NATO refers only to Islamic State and the situation in North Africa, Syria and Iraq as a challenge. It's a huge problem, but one that so far NATO as an alliance has not yet been asked to solve. Rob Olver, BFBS at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Well, speaking to BFBS at the talks this lunchtime, the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon said Russia's tough talking must be taken seriously. Well, we've seen a uh, very real threat from Russia. Uh, we've seen seen that on the ground uh, uh, in uh, Crimea and in eastern Ukraine, and we've had uh, a lot of this uh, provocative behaviour with flights and uh, other uh, other activity. Uh, in the Baltic and so on. And we also know, of course, that uh, Russia is modernizing. It's modernizing its conventional weapons and it's modernizing its uh, its nuclear forces too. So uh, uh, we have to take account of that. But NATO is a defensive alliance and it's very important that we demonstrate to all members of NATO our commitment to collective self-defense. Well, here, as usual, is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. NATO is a defensive alliance. Not not so, says Russia, really. Listen, the, this thing about, uh, in the early report about, you know, this NATO meeting, it was all about talking about Russia. On the 4th of April, 1949, 1949, the first of these meetings took place. They were talking about Russia. Every single meeting, there are two a year, they talk about Russia or the Soviet Union as it then was. What is particularly interesting now, when there was a Soviet Union, NATO could handle it. They knew how to respond to the things that the Soviet Union did. Uh, it was it was uncomplicated, and as for the so-called allies that we've got now in in the eastern part of Europe, they were in the Russian camps. We didn't have to bother about what they may be thinking, whether they were going to be invaded or not. What is very very clear from all the meetings we've seen this year, and including the one last year, the the, the summit in Wales, is that for the first time NATO does not know how to handle Russia, Mr Putin. It doesn't know how to read him, and therefore it doesn't know how, how to respond. How seriously do you think this should be taken? Because it is said in some quarters that Russia is only as strong as NATO is weak. Uh, you know, it's it, it's that sort of thing that y- you can fall into all sorts of traps. I listen and say, ah, that's, that, that's the Isn't answer that, Are then. you saying we don't know the answer we yet? Don't know, you see, what we do know, we do know the capabilities but we don't know the intentions of to use them or how they could be used. Now, we have, uh, we have Mr. Fallon, who quite rightly says that uh, Russia is spending loads of more money on defence, and, and the uh, Secretary-General of NATO says Russia is increasing mm-hmm. its spend spending. The reason for that is that up until about sort of 10 years ago, Russia's forces were rust buckets. They had really been allowed to sort of melt away almost. Putin arrives and looks out and says, I can't command something like this. That's the reason that the defence spending is accelerating at the speed it's accelerating, not the amount. And in each side, uh, citing what it's going to put where, what are these ballistic missiles that Russia's saying it's going to acquire or it's thinking about acquiring? Okay, what happened last month, uh, there was a big parade. It was, you know, it was the May Day Parade. 
and the uh, chief of the general staff or the chief of the Russian staff was there and Putin shook his hand and made a statement uh, on, on the microphones and said, I am going to bring you 40 new ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And afterwards I rang up Guy Nurse in, in Moscow and said, have you got them? Are they in the, uh, are they in the all bat or what? He said, not exactly. <laughs> um, but he said, I suspect we will get them, but We'll have to wait and see. We'll know, he said, though, by December. Now, coincidentally, December is another of these defence ministers' meetings, and the Russians always get uh, grafty, start saying strong things when there's a defence ministers' meeting. Do you think, I mean, lots of talk whether this is a new Cold War or not, where do you stand on this? I don't think it's a new Cold War. Um, It's a different type of thing. You see, again, Cold War meant, you know, we know what that means. We're back to my point about NATO. NATO would say it's not a Cold War. Then you say, well, what is it? So we're not quite sure what it is because they cannot read Putin. More so, they cannot read what might happen if Putin went. And that is the most important thing. Well, America's plan to base a brigade of tanks across six European countries will have an impact on Russian aggression. That's according to a research fellow and Russia expert at the defence and security think tank RUSI. Dr Igor Sutyakin also says Russia already considers itself at war with the West and is engaged in a psychological battle for power. BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross reports. Putin's Russia portrays itself as a nation of military might. The Russian president has made no secret of his plans to expand and modernise the country's military, adding 40 missiles to its nuclear arsenal, which is probably why he chose a grand victory parade to reveal a first glimpse of Russia's newest tank, the Armata T-14. Russia claims the tank has greater speed, firepower and technology than anything produced by Western armies, closing the gap between Russian and Western firepower. It's not due to enter service until 2020. But Rusi's Russian expert, Dr. Igor Sutyagin, believes the tank's development has been speeded up as part of a psychological game. It was good timing for, uh, for the Kremlin to provide another victory for the population because after Crimea, the popular Russian population expects another um, manifestations of Russian greatness. And to show this new design, which is more or less revolutionary, was the good, good message to the uh, domestic audience and to the Western audience as well. That audience has responded swiftly. The United States announced 250 of its tanks and armoured vehicles will now spread across six European nations, reassuring NATO allies and deterring any would-be aggressors. It amounts to just one brigade, but this is the first time the United States has stationed its tanks in Europe for two years. That sends a strong message to Putin. Well, at least America Americans do mean business, they do take that seriously, and uh, they are getting prepared for forceful confrontation with Russians. So politically and psychologically, that is the um, qualitative change. And certainly if uh, the Kremlin perceives that the West, or the United States in this case, are ready to use force 
and that changes a lot. That's because Russia's power has relied on a weak response from the West. Looking to the future, Dr. Sutigen says it's already too late to talk of a new Cold War. Because, well, for instance, Russian Minister of Defense described, described the, new situ- the current situation as the early stage of the modern war, modern type of war. And from reading the Russian Minister of Defense daily, Red Star, you get just one um, impression that uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense believes that it is in war with the West. So we should not wait for the new war. It is here. At least Russia is engaged in war by by their perception and some of their actions. That is um, just cold stage of war. But, well, they quite openly say that they're at war with the West. Under Western sanctions and with an economy in recession, it's unlikely Russia will want that war to heat up. Charlotte Cross for BFBS, London. Still to come, defence spending. Can the UK really have its cake and eat it? And the Victoria Cross, is it time for a rethink on why it's awarded? Before that, let's have a look at some of the other stories making the headlines this week. Christopher, reporting The Guardian today, says Bosnia is the new recruiting ground for IS because of high youth unemployment and political problems there. Do you buy that? Well, you know, the whole of the Balkans has got a history of sending people to other people's wars. And if you look at what was happening or what has very much happened uh, in Chechnya, the Churchens have gone to other people's wars again, and uh, that happened in, in Afghanistan. So this is no surprise, but it, it's a much harder one to monitor who goes. The Queen's speech in Germany, stressing the importance of unity in Europe. Of course, it's not political, is it? But interesting timing. One does not have interesting timing. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, 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 first thing about the Queen about, and Germany. The Germans love the Queen. It's all part of this whole Prussian background. Indeed. Um, and but, but this was but this, this was totally unusual. Basically, you know, my government will not split up Europe. My government wishes to stay in Europe, etc. But it's a time for unity. And the whole thing about the anniversaries we've been we've been attending this year, the Queen's been attending this year, Prince Philip's been attending. That is the time to remember that the purpose of the European Union was to prevent another European war. At Calais, we've seen protests in the French uh, town port, I should say, this week um, during the French ferry workers' strike. What do you make of the situation there? I think the most... In- well, you know, that is not a new thing. It's been going on for sort of 10, 12 years, etc. And I remember uh, going to a meeting with... Uh, about Songat. About Songat with Mr Sarkozy, who was then just the interior minister. Now he's trying to be all sorts of other things. But I tell you, something is happening. Uh, the uh, the uh, harbmasters and Coast Guard, the Coast Guard Research uh, Institutes down the south coast of England have been told, look out for uh, different craft crossing from France to south coast porches or south coast beaches. You don't have to cross to a port like Calais to Folkestone or to Dover. Na- particularly, particularly now? Particularly now, particularly now. Yeah, because what's been happening in the Mediterranean, people say, let's do it, let's do it. And it's very easy. You see, the, dif- the distance across, the nearest distance across is, well, in fact, 
to 22, 23 miles they could do it, but even going further down, further down, you're only 45, 50 miles, which is less than the distance that's crossed from, uh, from, from Libya. Uh, China will hold a parade to mark the 70th anniversary of the defeat of Japan in 1945, sent invitations to relevant foreign countries, sent troops to take part. Is the UK relevant? Oh, it's, it's scratching itself in the Foreign Office because uh, it doesn't <laughs> what really want... What a lovely want... image you paint <laughs> there. It, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really want to do this for all sorts of reasons, human rights reasons as well. And the other thing that's happening, because it's now Ramadan, and Ramadan has started, and there's a large, large Muslim population in in China, and there are already being riots because the Chinese won't let them celebrate Ramadan. I'll tell you something else that there's another anniversary. It's fascinating. Today, this very day, uh, in 1950, the North Koreans crossed the 38th parallel and thus started the, the, the Korean mm. War, which is still going on officially. Right, um, it's time for the UK to make up its mind over defence spending, according to a group of experts who've written a report published by the think tank Civitas. The Conservative politician Bernard Jenkin is one of those involved in the report called Defence Acquisition for the 21st Century. And he joins us now. Bernard Jenkin, good to speak to you. Good to speak to you. This report suggests that the UK has reached some sort of crossroads. Is the situation really that serious? Yes, definitely. Um, we are, at the moment still continuing a method of defence acquisition uh, as though we were preparing for a war of national survival but we can't afford the big bits of kit and all the the arsenal of such a war. We, we, we need to rethink what we mean by defence because we're going to have to work out how to buy what we need to deal with contingencies as they arise uh, on a much, much smaller budget than we've been used to. And the report's suggesting we should do things differently, as you're saying. What, though? Well, if we should stop thinking about uh, buying expensive, big expensive platforms uh, 10 or 20 years ahead of any particular conflict, because so often, as we've discovered recently, these bits of kit turn out to be inappropriate or just too expensive and not numerous enough to be useful. I mean, the battle-winning kit... In, in Afghanistan were things like counter-IED technology, which was developed during the campaign, armoured vehicles that were developed during the campaign, uh, drones that were developed during the campaign, um, and therefore you want to switch the emphasis of your expenditure much more towards investment in small and medium-sized businesses where we have mm. a direct relationship and they, we develop the people and the technology that can generate the capability that we need having when said, we need it. Having said that, the, the MOD in response does say it has reformed its defence acquisition, that it is agile and flexible, it can deliver to the armed forces what they need at the time they need it. And you've just given an example of when they have. Yes, uh, but that's outside the main equipment programmes and it's a fraction of the expenditure that the government is spending on defence equipment. Uh, that there needs to be a, a shift as, as, as at the moment, most, nearly all the, in fact, more than all the money is committed to 2020 and beyond on existing programmes. Um, and we can't but afford, you that some we can't be cut afford to buy enough aircraft. We can't afford to buy all the equipment that's on order at the moment okay, on, well, the, on the present trajectory. And even the bits that we're buying are so expensive and so few we won't be able to sustain any losses. Now, you can't conduct a war on the basis you don't lose anything. So what should be cut now, then? You're talking well, about I'm these not big programmes. No. We, we, we need to... I mean, I'm arguing as well that we need to spend more on defence. But what, I'm, what, what the paper argues 
uh, and uh, we had a former chief scientific advisor of the Ministry of Defence co-authoring this, a former professor from the um, from from the Shrivenham Defence Academy, and uh, uh, several senior former senior uh, armed service men and women. This is about changing the emphasis of how we buy stuff, not going through the defence prime contractors, which tends to make for a very very inflexible program. Uh, spending more directly on the small and medium-sized uh, defence and indus industries and engineering companies, which really have the capability to create stuff quickly and when we need it during a campaign. Christopher Lee, do you agree? Um, I go part of the way. Um, I, I go back just a little way when, for example, there's a man called Bernard Gray, who was considered some sort of saviour, uh, some uh, saviour who, who, who could f fix the procurement programme. Uh, and you can't fix the procurement programme because it is too complex uh, in, the, in the Ministry of Defence. Um, and also, the Ministry of Defence is quite often uh, spending money, developing money, uh, for projects which, I mean, Benny Jenkins was just saying, you know, 2020 and beyond. Well, beyond can be 30 or 40 years. You take the, an aircraft carrier, you expect to be around for almost half a century. What we've got to do, and what we desperately need, is for a government to sit down and say... Forget imperial past. Forget our commitments at the moment. Let us look and say, this is what our policy is, our strategic policy is. We then go to the Ministry of Defence and say, right, Ministry of Defence, how will you guarantee our foreign policy interests for, let's say, the 20 or 30 years? How will you do that? Then we go to the Bernard Greys, we go to the Bernard Jenkins of this world, and we say, now, can you come up with a plan that we can actually spend the money wisely. It may be that you sort of go and buy F-16s or F-18s or whatever else from elsewhere. You depart from the traditional ways of funding your defence. Bernard Jenkin. Um, yeah, I agree with a certain amount of that, except I would even go so far as to say that we need a much more flexible budgeting system that when we're not fighting a conflict, the Ministry of Defence is allowed to save money and to keep it so that it can spend much larger sums of money when we're faced with a particular threat or a particular conflict. But it's also to understand that that, that total strategic approach that Christopher is rightly describing needs to recognise that defence acquisition, which is not just purchasing and not just procurement, but it's about the whole life cycle of the bits of kit we're talking about, is actually every bit as part of that strategy because uh, uh, as, you, as you pursue your trade policy and your aid policy and your influence policy, ultimately behind it is your defence policy, which is uh, helping you guarantee your own security, helping you shape the global environment in which we are. I mean, for example, the maintenance of our nuclear deterrent is so vital because it, it absolutely creates shape to the global environment that we're in and our position in the world. And it, every bit of military capability is somewhere on a spectrum that helps deter and shape uh, the global environment. And there are another two points here. One is that you've actually got to put this in, in perspective with what your alliance uh, commitments are within NATO and what you're willing to do uh, and, and how you go along, let's say, the forces of coalition uh, w with the United States. The, the other thing we've got to remember is that we're not just talking about iron, iron mongery here. Uh, 
Um, we can build a lot of very good equipment, and I'm sure, for example, the aircraft carrier is a very good example of this. How do you get enough people to sail them, to operate them, uh, and to operate them for a long, long period, and especially for training? And it seems at the moment that one of the biggest problems we've got or could have is that we could, we could line up with some very, very good equipment from, from the Navy's point of view, let's say the, uh, the Type uh, 45 uh, onwards, but we haven't got the right amount of training, we haven't got the right amount of manpower and women power to actually operate them. Banerjee, do you think Britain's um, in denial about its position in the world and its influence? I think there is a danger that we are still conducting our foreign policy on the basis that we're still the same country as we were, say, 30 years ago when we sailed to the Falklands. Uh, you know, we had, we had 50 surface ships when we sailed to the Falklands. We've got 19 now. And the thing about ships is they can only be in one place at once. Uh, so that's a much smaller footprint. How many, how many fighter jets uh, have we got uh, in Eastern Europe? I think it's four. These are very token gestures uh, compared to the, uh, the scale at which we used to be able to deploy uh, before the end of the Cold War. And I don't think we've quite adapted to the idea that actually, as, and I think Chris was touching on this, that the people are such an important component in this. The people are the force multiplier, mm -hmm. their skills and their knowledge. And part of, part of what the acquisition uh, policy has got to be about is investing much more in the people and the skills and the knowledge and the technology, because in the end it's the inventiveness of uh, with what you've got at the time rather than the big bits of kit that help you win the campaign. All right, Bernard Jenkins, thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. It's exactly 158 years this week since the first Victoria Cross was awarded, originally to recognise some of the most courageous acts during the Crimean War. To date, a total of 1,358 medals have been won, the most recent by Lance Corporal Joshua Leakey for extraordinary bravery in Afghanistan. But a new book calls for an overhaul of the criteria for awarding the medal and questions the reasons behind some of the decisions. Gary Mead wrote the book, Victoria's Cross, the untold story of Britain's highest award for bravery, and I asked him about the origins of the medal. It came about in 1856 in the Crimean War when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, her husband, decided that they wanted to have a particular um, honour for individual uh, examples of heroic bravery by individual soldiers and seamen. And how do you think that the awarding of the Victoria Cross and the criteria has changed over the years since its inception? Um, it, that's a very interesting question. It's changed dramatically. I mean, if you consider that 111 were given out for the for the Crimean War, and then 182 for the Indian Mutiny in the 19th century, and then 182 for the whole of the Second World War, um, quite clearly the standards are changed. They have changed because and there are fewer today. There are fewer today. Um, you know, we're, we're down to you know, it's it's. 14, I think, since 1945. Why do you think that is? I think it, well, I know it's because the military um, have simply taken it into their own hands about, you know, setting a high standard, an impossibly high standard. So if you are to win a Victoria Cross today, how do you get to that point? How are you selected? What's the process? Well, perhaps a bit controversially, I suggest that it's all down to luck. And it's five stages of luck. You have to be there at the right time to do the right thing. You have to be noted by officers uh, present. You have to then be passed up several committees before you stand a chance of getting it. And all of those... You know, oh, I forgot the citation. The citation has to be written up well rather than poorly. 
Um, and then eventually we get to the ultimate committee, the VC committee, and then you know, the people on that committee, civilians and officers, will sit around and debate whether or not you're capable to bear the burden. By which they mean, are you going to turn out to be a drunk or a mad person or a rapist? Because you, you write in your book, the kind of behaviour needed today to gain a VC is not so much courage but madness. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I think it's pretty mad to run the risk of 90% death. <laughs> I mean, you have to be uh, overwhelmed by the incident that's happening right then and there and I can't imagine what that must feel like. You argue in the book that the Victoria's Cross has been used in the past as a political tool to encourage support for unpopular wars and that today's recipients are as important as much for how they'll be judged by the media as anything else. How do you know that? Um, I think it's just by looking at the data. You can tell by individual cases and by the overall data that there's a change that's happened surreptitiously and without public announcement the change started in the First World War, particularly when uh, uh, various generals started to say, well, we shouldn't be giving the VC for simply uh, um, removing a wounded officer from the field. That's not a great idea because there's going to be lots of them given away. So therefore, we have to start making it different. So we need to make it for... I don't know, an aggressive action that's turned the course of the battle. Of course, um, you argue for more recognition for civilians and women. We now, of course, have the Elizabeth Cross, which is given to bereaved family whose relatives have died as a result of war or terrorism. Presumably you think that's a good and welcome idea. I think it's a bad idea because it's sort of once again trying to extend the boundaries of courage beyond the acceptable and beyond the sensible. It's sort of, oh yes, everyone must have prizes even though you've been, you know, even though your husband or boyfriend friend or brother uh, has been killed, we'll give you a, a, a piece of tin to say thank you very much. Do you think perhaps the Armed Forces Covenant is, is a better way to reward people and show that the nation's well, gratitude for what people do? Look, I just think that most Armed Forces um, families would appreciate having proper housing rather than a piece of tin. Gary Mead there, Christopher... Um He's never been in the forces. Has harsh, he? harsh words at the end there. Yeah, it's it's it, you know it's it's a nice idea for a book, quite frankly. <laughs> and I bet he, you know, and and it's as simple it is as simple as that. See, you have a, a nice house and some tin, don't you? I have a bit of tin, yeah. All those tokens I've saved up for them as well. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP, or download the podcast from iTunes. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabo, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.